Let's turn together to 1 Samuel chapter 4. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've uh, begun a study through this book, 1 Samuel. Uh, and It's been good so far. We're only a few chapters in, and we've seen how God is working and moving according to His plan and not that of men. And perhaps even when it would seem as though He was not at work and was not victorious, that God has been working to um, eliminate the unrighteous and wicked leadership that is in Israel and to implant over them uh, a righteous leadership and to provide for and to lead them uh, in righteousness. And so we've seen that uh, Samuel, the young man, has been brought to the Lord and the story has really, for the first three chapters, it focuses on Samuel as the evidence of God's gracious and loving provision. And uh, that's been encouraging, I think, for us. It has for my heart as I've studied and prepared and even preached. And I hope that those messages have been encouraging to you as well about what God is doing in your life. The story, however, this morning takes an abrupt turn. Uh, We're going to see that the focus of chapters 4 and following for quite some time goes from Samuel to the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God. Uh, And so we're not going to hear from Samuel for quite some time. He will return into the story as we see the installation and beginning of the new leadership in Israel. But before that can happen, the author must, uh, maybe not must, but intends to and is going to spend a significant portion of time uh, showing us and telling us the story of the elimination of the old regime in Israel. And those stories are going to center around the Ark of the Covenant of God. Uh, and that's, that's, so that's what we're going to see as we begin in chapter 4 this morning. Before we read it together, we'll read the whole chapter. It's 22 verses. Let's pray. O Lord our God, awaken our hearts to the light of your word. God, help us to see the truth. God, light a fire in us to, to believe it and to do it that cannot be put out. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God's word says, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And in some way, that, that's actually the, the final verse of the first three chapters, right? That, that God's word had been absent in Israel, but, but there is little Samuel. And the word of the Lord comes to Israel through Samuel, and it continues to come to all of Israel through Samuel. So now it's going to shift, and there's going to be a change. Here's what it says. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. When the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came, in, excuse me, came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. They said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. 
Woe to us who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is your uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were both dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said, uh, said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law her, and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Okay, so you see, this is a very different story than what we've read in the first three chapters. Uh, this is a dark story in many ways. It is a difficult story. There's a great slaughter in Israel. And as I said, the focus seems to be on this ark. Let me tell you a little bit about the ark of the covenant or the ark of God. It was a box. It was just a wooden box. It was a special box to be sure. But at the end of the day, it was a box. But on the box were these cherubim and uh, these angels, these representations of something. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. And then uh, inside of the box were the, the law, the tablets of God, the word of God. And so the Ark of the Covenant would typically and almost always have resided in the temple in Shiloh. It would have been in the temple of God among God's people, and it would have been hidden by a very thick curtain known as the veil. Uh, so much so that the children of Israel, the Israelites who put so much stock into this uh, into this box, they would not have even been really familiar. Some of them may not have ever even seen it. The only time the ark would have been out was when they would have had it around uh, marching it through the wilderness. But since that time, it has been residing in the temple in Shiloh, and it is to remain behind the veil in God's temple among God's people. And although they had not ever seen it, it, it signified some extremely significant things because it was Though it was only a box, it was a box that pointed to the God that they worshipped and the God they served and the God that led them. 
where you see the cherubim on the top of the box, it represented uh, something of the throne of God. And so it was, it was thought of to resemble the place where God sat among his people so that it signified for them his very presence among them, God with us. The idea that he is ever-present and intimately involved in the affairs of their life. He's not some distant God that's off in, uh, off in the heavens somewhere that is just letting things unfold according to the will and the strength of men. In addition to that, as I said, inside of the box, there would have been some things, multiple things, but one of them would have been the Word of God. And so it would have also signified not only God's presence with them, but God's speaking to them. So that it signified that there is this ever-present God who reveals himself to us and who declares things to us and who commands us and leads us via his word. And thirdly, it would have signified something of the restoration and salvation that this present and speaking God brought when he came and when he spoke. For once a year on the Day of Atonement, they would have come into the Holy of Holies behind the veil that was the curtain in the temple where the ark of God would have been and the high priest on this one time a year would have sprinkled a blood sacrifice, a blood offering on what was known as the mercy seat or the top there of the ark. And so there, it was a place of atonement to be made. It was a place of forgiveness and the washing of sin to be signified. Ultimately, friends, it was a sign that pointed us to Christ that was to come. Our Emmanuel, God with us, literally in the flesh, right? Our ultimate sacrifice for sin, the Word incarnate. You see that all of the realities of that little box, they pointed us to Jesus. But so it was a, it was a special box for them. And so at this time, among the children of Israel, they are oppressed by the Philistines. They are at war with the Philistines, they are in bondage to the Philistines. Uh, and, 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 and as it says, you know, verse 1, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. And guys, it doesn't go well. Uh, it, it's, not, it's not a good day for Israel. They're encamped at Aphek, the Philistines are. They drew up a line against Israel, it says. The battle spread and Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. Well, that seems like a lot until you get later in the passage, doesn't it? But so kill 4,000, the Israelites are defeated, and the leaders of the children of Israel are wringing their hands, wanting to know, oh man, what are we to do? Holy moly, that was a bad loss. We've been defeated. We've got to remedy the situation. And so they come up with this idea that what's missing is the ark. We just need to send to Shiloh and uh, get Hophni and Phinehas, the priests there, to bring the ark of God out to be with us. For if this box would just come into our midst, then certainly God would uh, deliver us and would save us. And so it says there that, you notice it says in verse 3, the troops came to the camp. The elders of Israel came up with this plan. They said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And so here it is. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us. It's very interesting, isn't it, the, where their trust lies, that it may come up and it may be among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And so that's going to bring us to the first aspect of our text then as far as the point of this sermon or one of the points of this sermon that I want us to consider together. And that is the issue of superstition. To some degree, I want you to see that there was a very superstitious religious practice taking place in that day. 
right? They're out on the battlefield and they've experienced a great defeat. They cry out, why has the Lord defeated us this day? And the answer to their problem has nothing to do with them. It has nothing to do with their hearts. It has nothing to do with God's purposes or plans. It has everything to do with the absence of a wooden box. Now, it's a special box to be sure, but at the end of the day, it was just a box. It represented something significant. It was a sign pointing to something significant. But friends, never confuse the sign with the thing signified. God was not in the box. And friends, God did not have to have the box to operate in a way to deliver his people. Do you see that there was this superstitious belief that, oh, we just need this relic of our faith. We just need this box for God is in the box and is his power resides in the box. Or maybe if we could just touch the box, friends, they did not understand that God did not need the ark to be with his people. God did not need the ark to deliver them or to display his power. He was not dependent upon the box. That's not to diminish the value or the special nature of the box. It is simply to understand that God did not depend upon it. He did not have to go where it went. God did as he pleases. We we read from Psalm 115, right? The nations say, where is their God? Don't, don't you, to some degree, don't you think the Philistines wondered that? Where, where is their God, these Israelites? He is in the heavens, and he does as he pleases. Friends, he goes where he desires, and he does what he purposes and has planned to do. Friends, do you realize that if the ark of God had been victorious it would not have secured the honor of god and the honor of his people and if as was the case the ark of god was not victorious it would not diminish or desecrate his honor for all of eternity the point is that they had this sort of amazing superstitious belief in the ark but the problem was not as they were losing the battle that day the problem with them was not that the ark was not in their presence but that god was not in their hearts And by bringing a box onto the battlefield and into their midst, that did not cure the problem. The presence of the ark among them did not necessitate the presence of God in them. Friends, there are some very, very important lessons there. Number one, unless your heart is right, Unless you have Christ in your heart and a deep and abiding relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then all of this is just superstition. Isn't it? That we somehow think that there's something lucky, like a rabbit's foot, that we come and rub on Sunday, that we sing about. That somehow the favor and the love of God is going to be garnered if we'll rub it just right. If we'll just take it and put it in our pocket. If we'll just read it once a week, if we'll just bow our head for a moment of silence before we devour the hamburger. To some degree, you, you, listen, none, none of, I, I hope, I, I don't think that any of you have a, a rabbit's foot in your pocket. I don't think that any of you are literally sort of experientially that superstitious. I, I mean, I hope you're not wearing the same socks that you wore when you won the state championship when you were in high school on the baseball team. You know, I 
and, and I don't think we're going to get there. But friends, let's not misunderstand two great realities where it is present in our life. On the one hand, there are plenty of circles of religious, and, and I use this term very loosely, of the Christian world. Where, where people still depend superstitiously upon relics. Wafers and bells and boxes and crosses. I love the cross. You can wear it around your neck all day long. It doesn't mean God's with you. Friends, do you see? So on the one hand, there are still plenty of circles in Christian in Christianity, where there is genuine religious superstition, but on a deeper level, to some degree, I think that we can all be guilty of some superstitious practice. For the problem is not that we're not doing enough things, or that we're not going to church enough, or that we're not reading our Bible enough, or that we don't have the ark among us. The problem is God is not in our hearts. And if your heart is not right, you can do all of these things superstitiously, hoping that they're just going to garner God's favor, rubbing them like a lucky rabbit's foot. I would contend that like Israel on that day, not only are we superstitious, that perhaps there is an even deeper problem. It's not mere superstition. For to be certain, there is some of that. But secondly, I want you to consider manipulation. Superstition first, yes. But I think that like Israel, we are guilty of manipulation. Let's, let's, let's consider a little more carefully what they had done. Why was it that the, that the elders of the children of Israel came together and said, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Notice verse 4. So they sent to Shiloh and they brought from the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. I think that language is important in understanding. So the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Friends, I think something a bit deeper is going on here. On the one hand, I think they thought it was our lucky rabbit's foot. If we'll just pay homage to God and, you know, do ha, have let's, let's go get the Ark. The problem is we, just have, we don't have the Ark, and there's a superstitious belief, but I think it went far beyond that. They knew that God at least... His presence among his people was symbolized and signified with this very special box. And friends, the reason that's so important is because I think here was their thinking. If we'll get God's box that signifies to us and to the world his power and his preservation and his working among us, his special and chosen people. And that's exactly the perspective that the world had, isn't it? Because later in the passage, don't the Philistines begin to fret? Oh my, woe to us. Why? This is the God that sent the plagues to Egypt. Do you see that this God has come to be among them? That there is this, now this great problem for the Philistines. Do not think that that was not in the minds of the children of Israel. That if we will bring our God and his reputation here, that he will be forced to save us on account of his own name and his own fame. For if God does not save us this day, not only will his people be dragged through the mud, but his name and his power will be compromised and will be undermined. And there will be among the nations the thought that God has fallen. The thought that God is not with us. The thought that God has forgotten or forsaken. 
or the thought that God simply could not do it? Do you see that they were trying in some way to manipulate God by putting him in a box in order to force his hand to deliver them as they saw fit? To bend to their plans for their life and for their country. Friends, we cannot put God in a box and we cannot force his hand in serving our purposes. Do you understand that God's purposes are not our own? His plan is not our plan. And God serves no one, but God is served by everyone. And the Israelites on this day, they would have experienced this reality firsthand because they brought the ark of God with the plan in order to, I think, superstitiously think that it would make some difference if we brought a wooden box here, but also to manipulate God into serving their purposes, but yet they would fall. Why? Because they meant for God to bring the Ark of the Covenant, for them to bring the Ark of the Covenant there in order that God be forced to do what they wanted to happen, which was deliverance. But God brought the Ark there that day and allowed them to bring it that day for his own purposes, which were to do what? To fulfill his own promise to put to death Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. So do you see that they meant it in order to pigeonhole God into doing what they wanted done. But God used it in order to bring about his own purposes and his own plan, and he allowed them to fall so that he could eliminate the wicked, unrighteous regime that was leading Israel and put to death Hophni and Phinehas as he promised to do as an act of judgment in the previous chapters that we've already read. We generally think about this type of manipulating God, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast forward to our day. You say, well, we don't, I, don't, I don't manipulate God to make him do what we want to do. Let, we typically think about this type of circumstance with unbelievers. We generally think about those who are not among us, at least not professing active church people, about those who are this type of uh, expressing this type of manipulation toward God. Why? Well, you've all seen it. It's been one of the most amazing realities of my pastoral life. People who have absolutely no interest in God's word. They have absolutely no interest in God's people or his church. They don't give any of their time. They don't give any of their money. They have no need for God on a daily basis. But what happens when the child dies? What happens when the job is lost? What happens when the marriage crumbles? What happens when cancer strikes? When tragedy befalls the, us, and, 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 and especially those of us who are not actively seeking the Lord and a part of his people, it matters not. They come to the church, don't they? And they come to church people, don't they? And they crack open their Bible and let the pages fall where they will and they point their finger down and they pray to a God that they do not know, that they have not served, and they seek from him a word of advice. Why? 
Well, maybe some superstition, but because at the end of the day, they are hoping deep in their heart to manipulate God into serving their purposes. Because they really need that job. And they really love the child that's been diagnosed with cancer. And they deeply long for the relationship that they used to have with their spouse. And so they open their Bible, they utter a prayer, they show up in worship so that they can do something for God to put him in a position, why? To bless those that seek him. To honor those that ask him. Right? That's typically the way we think about it. We see it all the time where unchurched people, unbelieving people, faithless people have no interest seemingly in their life in the church, you know when they show up to the church. But friends, it's not only those who are not among us, at least that's how we normally think about it, but that's not the only case. What about us in the church? Friends, what about the very practices of the church? Are we guilty of the same thing? And I would contend to you this morning that we need to be very careful not to be. Let me ask you this. Why do we have the special prayer service? Why do we have the, the extra Bible study? Why do we orchestrate an intentional, intense revival? Is it because we deeply love the Lord and we deeply long to spend time with Him as we do daily in our life? Or is it because there's been some need to arise? Is it because we think that if we will hold an all-night prayer vigil that God must answer. That if we do like James called us to do and call for the elders of the church to lay hands on someone and pray that God must deliver. Friends, do you see that we can do good and right and biblical things? And we can do it with a wrong heart and with wrong motives. And we can do so in order to manipulate God into serving our own purposes. Let us be very careful to check our hearts Friends, let us seek the Lord, and I'm going to use Ralph Davis's language here, because he is worthy, not because he is useful. And let that sink in for just a moment. You don't have to be an unbeliever that only shows up on Christmas and Easter and when cancer is delivered. To be guilty of this same sin. Friends, we can be superstitious in the things we do. We can be manipulative in the practices that we participate in. Friends, we can do it all with a wrong heart, hoping to have God serve our purposes according to our plans, making our wills preeminent if we are not careful. Friends, God is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our time. He is worthy of our study. He is worthy of our all-night prayer service. Friends, let us do it because he's worthy, not because he is useful. So, so uh, superstition, manipulation. Third, I want us to consider confusion in this text. And this is not going to take just a moment because in some way this has been wrapped up in the first two points. It is obvious that there is a great confusion taking place not only in the theology of the Israelites and their understanding of the ark and their attempts to manipulate God into doing what they wanted him to do. I think there is also, and we're going to move to the other aspect right now, I think there is also a great confusion in the understanding of what God did do. So the ark comes, albeit a terrible idea, and are they victorious? 
No, because God has plans that are not the Israelites. God plans to do away with the wicked leaders in Israel, to remove from the house of Eli and even from Shiloh his presence and his leadership. And he does so, for the ark would never return there again. And so he allows and brings the ark into the battle that day, not in order to deliver, but in order to bring judgment and in order to fulfill his own words and his own promises to kill them. And he does do just that. He kills these two men, 30,000 fall, the Israelites flee. It is a horrific, bloody tragedy that is brought about by God's promised judgment upon the current leadership in Israel and their unrighteousness. But here's the question. What do you think the Philistines would have thought about this? Victory. Well, they took the ark of God. They took the ark of God because in their mind's eye, what? God could not help them. God could not save them. God was powerless to do what the Israelites longed for him to do. Maybe it was not that he was powerless or that he was no longer able to care for his own. Maybe the Philistines looked and thought that he had forgotten. Maybe he had forgotten to go with the box. Maybe he had forgotten that his people were in desperate need. Maybe he's the God who forgets. Or worse, maybe he's the God who forsakes. Who looked down upon his unrighteous and wicked people and said, no, they're no longer worth it anymore. Maybe he simply was no longer concerned with the affairs of their life. He simply did not care. The apathetic God who sat in heaven and allowed men to do whatever they saw fit to do. I think there would have been an intense confusion. And I think that confusion, that same mentality, not only in the Philistines, is seen at the end of this passage in verses 12 and following. Because there's a man of Benjamin, and he runs from the battlefield, and he comes into the city, and he finds the old and decrepit Eli sitting. Age has caught up with him, 98 years old. His eyesight is gone. He's fat. He cannot get up and get around. We know that he's overweight terribly because it says that when he fell off, that his weight, because he was old and heavy, it had something to do with uh, the fact that his fall killed him. And what? The man of Benjamin comes in and gives the report that Israel has been defeated and has fled and your two sons are dead. And Eli cries out, oh no, the ark of God has been captured. And all of this news is too much for him to bear and he falls over and snaps his neck and he dies. Don't you think that maybe Eli thought, oh no, where is God? We have been forgotten. And then you can even move farther because it tells us about his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, who was pregnant. And the news is such a shock to her that it sends her into what we can assume is premature labor. And in the course of this premature labor, she herself dies. So the news is so mind-boggling and so... uh, It's such a burden upon them. They're so concerned. It's such concerning news that Eli dies as a result of hearing what, how God has not delivered and worked. Phineas's wife dies. And before she dies, she names the child Ichabod. 
and declares that the glory of God has departed from among his people. Friends, don't you see that there was a lot of confusion? A lot of confusion on the part of the outsiders, a lot of confusion on the part of God's people. The lesson, I think, in this is that God will fulfill his word and will bring about his plans even when it seems to us a disaster. Friends, God is doing what God has promised and purposed to do from eternity past, even when we see it to be a train wreck. We don't have to get it. We don't have to understand. We don't have to like it. But friends, let us not be brought to despair as we see among these in the verses of this text because we cannot see where the good and gracious hand of God is working. Friends, it may look to you like all is lost. But be determined by passages like this one to not fall prey to the fall prey to the temptation to believe that God has forgotten. God is there and God is good. And so that brings us to the last point after the confusion, and that is restoration. Friends, restoration. Do you understand that in these verses, God is being a gracious God? I think we are gripped when we read this passage by the bloody tragedy that befalls the Israelites. The capturing of the ark, the men that have been killed, the blood that has been shed, the wives that have been lost, the husbands that are gone. I think we are gripped so by the bloody tragedy that befalls Israel in this text that we often miss the gracious movement of God. First of all, God is graciously working among them in this act of judgment and even in placing them into bondage and defeat and sending the ark of God off in order to teach them who he really is. Why? Because they had a wrong, superstitious, manipulative view about who God was and how he worked with and for them. And God is so interested and so good to, to know them and for them to know him rightly and to know him as he is, that he would be willing to suffer shame upon his own name than to allow them to continue carrying on in a false relationship with him and to continue to allow them to maintain a false understanding of him. Do you see that by sending the ark of God away, that yes, the glory had departed from Israel, but it was not to destroy them. It was to teach them to seek him correctly. Do you see the difference? The gracious God that does not simply allow us to continue in false relationships with false conceptions about him. He loves us too much to let us do so to our demise. And he would rather suffer, even if it's only temporary, shame upon his own name among the Philistines and even among his own people in order to teach us out of his grace and goodness who he is and how to find him. He wants us to know him, that is, to be in a relationship with him, and he wants us to know him rightly. 
that is as he is. Friends, if God does not fit nice and neat into your logical, human, 2015, you know, framework of social understanding, good. Maybe you have some glimpse of who he really is. Friends, God will go to great lengths to teach us about himself. He will allow us to suffer defeat, and he will allow his name to be dragged through the mud to some degree, even if only temporarily, in order that we might know him and know him rightly. Secondly, God is gracious in his working in this act of judgment, because think about it. By bringing this judgment both upon Israel and namely upon its leaders, as he promised to do, God is going to begin to build up a righteous house for himself. And he is going to raise up Samuel as his man and his prophet to deliver his word to his people. And it is through his ministry that God is going to ordain a righteous lineage and kingship to rule over his people. Do you see that all of that comes to be because of the judgment the bloody judgment of God on this day. Friends, it is often, it is often that the difficult judgments of God upon us today are the beginnings of his most gracious acts of kindness toward us. Friends, think about salvation. If God did not beat you down with your sin and expose to you your need for Christ, that he would not be able to call you to repentance and faith in Jesus, whereby we are restored. Friends, in order to be gracious on both of these fronts, God is willing to at least seem to be and to be perceived as inept and incapable for just a moment. You say, what's the point of that? It is simply to tell you, Friends, God is very concerned about our relationship with him and how we seek him. And I would simply ask you this morning a couple of questions. Are there any practices in our life, in our families, in our church, whereby we express a false understanding of who God is and maybe a superstitious or manipulative spirit about how God works? Does our life and our worship reflect a genuine longing for God because he is worthy and not because he is useful? And friends, let me tell you this. Be encouraged to trust and believe in his plans today because what looks from your perspective to be a disaster from heaven looks to be a beautiful tapestry that God is weaving and every thread has its place according to the providence and the purposes of a sovereign and a gracious God. Would you believe in him? Would you trust him? Would you do so by faith in Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ, our Savior, by which we are given a relationship with you and access to you. And thank you for your spirit through whom you teach us about yourself and for your word where you reveal yourself to us and God, I pray that you would help us to understand how you work and what you do and how you move. God, that we would be content to understand that we can't understand. 
to realize that in all of the circumstances of our life that may seem to us to be difficult and tragic, that you are there, that you are moving, that you have a plan that you mean for our good, that you intend to bring about your own glory. God, that you have a purpose. Help us to trust in that. And Father, help us to examine our own hearts, to see that we know you intimately, to see that we know you rightly. God, help us at Redeemer Baptist Church to labor, to labor, to protect and to preserve a right and a faithful understanding of who you are. God, show us yourself this day. Show us Christ, your Son, our Savior. God, and by him, save us. I'd go to whatever length is necessary to put us on our knees, to bring about repentance, to place faith in our hearts. God, we pray that you would redeem us in Jesus' name. Amen.